Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Coming up on The Science Revolution, Dr. Bandy Lee, Yale School of Medicine author of The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, joins us on how Trump and other cult leaders infect their disciples. Plus, Professor Richard Silberstein, Chief Scientist and Director of NeuroInsights Research Program, drops by to explain the neuroscience of the creative geek. Have you been described as brilliant or genius, eccentric and or socially clumsy, absent-minded and an independent thinker? This segment is for you. Tom Harbin here with you. On the line with us is Dr. Bandy Lee, Assistant Clinical Professor at the Yale School of Medicine, Forensic Psychiatrist at the Yale University Medical School, co-founder of the World Mental Health Coalition, and editor of the book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. 27 psychiatrists and mental health experts assess the president. The website for that book is dangeruscase.org. You can follow Dr. Lee on Twitter at BandyXLee1. Bandy actually won. Dr. Lee, welcome back to the program. I'm curious your thoughts. It's been a while since we've talked. Donald Trump is a cult leader or maybe even, I mean, this authoritarian movement long predates Donald Trump in the United States. How this cult comes about, what are the factors that influence it and how we best deal with it? Yes, thanks for having me back. When we first published The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump in 2017, we were emphasizing that despite its title, Donald Trump was not our main focus. His presidency was a statement about the state of the nation, the state of its public mental health in particular, of which he was a barometer at the time of his election, and then the chief accelerant and exacerbator once he was in office. And so we are seeing the exaggerated effects of what he has accentuated and continues to perpetuate. His personality has become a cult-like figure, as you have noted. And this is what we were warning against when we said his dangers were greater than people were suspecting, that they would grow over time, and that they would spread without containment. Cults are tough things. A very, very close friend of mine used to work with Ted Patrick back in the 80s and 90s, basically uh, deprogramming people who had, you know, gotten into cults. There was a, you know, it was a thing back then. And then he went off and became a super Orthodox Jew uh, and lives in Jerusalem in a Hasidic community. And he's still one of my very best friends. We talk on Skype probably every month. And I once asked him, I said, did you trade? Because he started in a cult, but then he got in with Ted and was deprogramming people. And now he's, you know, in this religious group. And I said, you know, did you trade in one cult for another? And he said, he said, well, you know, there is this thing about being a member of a group, you know, and having other people have your back and having a shared worldview. And that's real and may or may not be toxic, depending on the circumstances. What are your thoughts on all that? You know, not on religious, whatever you want to call that, but how we deprogram people or how we move them from a toxic cult into a relatively non-toxic cult, like, you know, being a patriotic American. 
Yes, that's right. These are real human needs that have been exploited and accentuated because of the conditions that have given rise to their distortion in the first place. And so I think you had noted the new book that I have out, Profile of a Nation, Trump's Mind, America's Soul. I had urgently written it over the summer, first to warn the nation that the election was not going to be the end, and secondly, that he was not likely to be removed very easily. That is because we really have to understand the dynamics, not just of Donald Trump, but of his supporters and the nation as a whole, to be able to solve this problem. And it's better that we think of it as an ecology, since, as you see, we don't have the typical conditions of a cult where people are isolated and a personality, a dangerous personality is misleading them and brainwashing them, but rather it's happening nationwide when we have freedom of speech and openness with respect to information and how does this occur? Um, It occurs mainly through a kind of psychological manipulation and we have to recognize the fact that what we're seeing in a vast portion of the American population is not healthy, rational, and well-informed decision-making, but rather the pattern of what happens in cults or in abusive relationships where people are cut off from information sources, from access to expertise, and they are insulated from real news sources and led to believing disinformation and fake news as real. And much of this is through psychological techniques. And we have to recognize that this is happening and that we're not really seeing the expressed will of truly healthy thinking. Dr. Leap, my sincere apologies. I did not realize you had a new book out, and I'm so pleased to hear that you do. I'm really looking forward to reading it. Profile of a Nation is the title. Is there a website for it? Yes, you can look it up on my website itself. I have a new website, which is bandylee.com, B-A-N-D-Y-L-E-E.com. Great. And yes, it was published through my organization because we had no time to get a publisher. And as you may or may not know, mental health experts have been excluded largely from the media on speaking about this quite systematically. Hmm. And so I do appreciate your having me on. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, That is, is in itself a symptom of what is happening. You said one of the characteristics of a cult is that it cuts people off from information. I was talking with a listener who spends a lot of time watching Fox News, and he was pointing out, and I've noticed this too, that there are large chunks of reality that Fox News just doesn't even cover. With regard to Donald Trump and this crisis on January 6th, how do you break through? What should America be doing? What should we all be doing to deal with this cult-slash-mental health crisis that, frankly, it has become widespread in the Republican Party, 80% approval of Donald Trump right now? Yes. So you're correct to identify it as a mental health emergency, in fact. I would say it is the number one emergency of our time. The mental health pandemic is far more harmful and destructive than even the viral pandemic that we're suffering through. So I outlined three steps to improving this and the cult-like behavior is actually only the tip of the iceberg. 
And so the first step is to remove the offending agent, which was Donald Trump and his influence. In other words, having a severely symptomatic person, a mentally impaired person in a position of influence was largely responsible for spreading the symptoms. And so his removal from the social media, for example, showed a vast decrease in his influence and also in terms of the spread of fixed false beliefs that we have seen among his followers. But that is not enough. We have to set limits, firm boundaries, which includes conviction, prosecution, and truly bringing the whole party back to reality as to what is lawful and unlawful and what is right and wrong and also what is healthy versus mentally compromised. And the second step that I outline is fixing a lot of the disinformation system. And third is to correct the socioeconomic conditions that gave rise to the psychological vulnerability in the first place. Profile of a Nation at Bandy Lee, B-A-N-D-Y-L-E-E dot com. Dr. Lee, thanks so much for dropping by. It's always great talking with you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. The important stuff. Dr. Bandy Lee. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I have been looking forward to this conversation for weeks. An old friend of mine, Professor Richard Silberstein, the founder and board chairman and chief scientist at NeuroInsight, Professor Emeritus at Swinburne University in Melbourne, Australia, where he served as chairman of the physics department and later the founding director of the Brain Sciences Institute, has written this absolutely brilliant new piece. He published it over at medium.com titled The Neuroscience of the Creative Geek. On the line with us from Australia is Professor Richard Silberstein. Richard, welcome back to the program. It's been a couple of years, I think, since you've been on. First of all, who is this creative geek? What are we talking about here that you're writing about? Creative geek is the characters that you often come across, certainly in the sciences, for example. Some of the most creative individuals seem to have certain common characteristics to varying degrees. One of them, for example, of course, is highly creative. The other one is you know, remarkable ability, particularly in the science and technology areas. Now, in addition to that, quite often there are evidence of being on the autistic spectrum, what used to be called Asperger's syndrome or sort of high-functioning autism. That, that was the term that was used. And there was also a common feature of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Now, at first I thought these were just accidental combinations, but the more I thought about it, particularly in relation to the work that we've been doing on looking at the link between ADHD and creativity, the more I thought there was a reason why these sort of characters 
slightly eccentric, rather gauche, brilliant in their particular areas. You see a lot of them in Silicon Valley uh, and also universities. Those are the sort of people I'm talking about. In, in extreme cases, Alan Turing, for example, the person who really invented the computer, uh, even people like Albert Einstein, <coughs> Newton, Elon Musk, for example, would have many of those characteristics as well. They're the sort of people that I'm, that I'm talking about, people who've actually made enormous contributions to civilization over an enormous period of time. Yet they struggle in their personal lives. Yep. Autistic syndrome is, in fact, one of the key features that contributes to their creativity. There's a theory, a Cambridge professor, Professor Baron Cohen, has presented, which I think really captures an important feature about why people on the autistic spectrum seem to have a feel for science and technology. And that is that there are sort of two modes of thinking, if you will, what he calls the empathizing mode and the systematizing mode. Now, empathizing, essentially seeing the world in terms of human relationships, understanding other people, etc. Whereas the systematizing is more looking at the world as sort of abstract objects almost and relationships, you know, input, output, etc. A more abstract way, impersonal way of looking at are, the are, world. Now, are, are these categories, both, Richard, that, that, yeah, that years ago we referred to as left brain, right brain or as male dominant, female dominant? I think what, I, what Baron Cohen suggests is that the male dominant and female dominant looks like it really holds up. There is an element of the left-right brain element to it as well, although these days we now seem to realise that both left and right hemispheres of the brain seem to contribute to both aspects. But certainly there's an element of the left and right brain with the left brain, for example, being more associated with looking at the world as, as objects, etc., and right brain more looking at the world as a whole and also appreciating facial expression and human relationships. There's an element of, to both of those. There's a bit of oversimplification, but there's an element to both of those. So that right brain, left brain, but more importantly, sort of male-female is the sort of thing that Baron Cohen suggested was what was happening. Now, the intriguing thing is that one of the deficits that we see in autism and Asperger's syndrome is that they have a difficulty in essentially the very strong in terms of the systematizing, but the systematizing part is much more dominant than the empathizing aspect. And so being able to recognize intuitively other people's feelings at the time that you're talking, etc., uh, comes less naturally. It can be taught, but it comes less naturally. So they tend to have difficulty with, for example, uh, conversation, parties, for example, and, and also to a degree, relationships as well. That's me. I'm terrified by cocktail parties and small groups of people. I, I just I, I don't know what to do. But in any case, uh, you know, we're always looking for neat little categories to put people in. And I, I suspect that none of us fit into, into neat little categories. But it sounds like what you're suggesting is that for these folks, their ability to understand things kind of mechanically, understanding, you know, okay, this goes to that and that goes to this and I can draw a schematic in my head and understand it. The kind of skill set that helps in math and science and physics and things like that is a completely separate skill set from 
why is Sally upset? You know, why is John's frowning? You know, what, what does that mean? How should I respond? And that for most people, those two skill sets are relatively balanced. But among these folks, the, the systematizing skill set is, or, or talent or ability or whatever you want to call it, is exaggerated and the empathizing one is diminished. Do I have that right? That's exactly what Baron Cohen is suggesting. How does that yeah. produce greater creativity in the sciences? Well, okay, we need to go back a little bit and just have a look at how do we come up with creative ideas? Now, we now understand that there's a network within the brain called the default mode network. This network of regions in the brain becomes active, lights up, when you're doing nothing much in particular, just relaxing, daydreaming, etc. Now, that is the network that, one, is overactive in people with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. That actually is one of the reasons that causes them to sort of lose track on focusing on a boring task, etc. But it is also the network that comes up with new ideas. And any time you think of a problem, that network unconsciously, you don't even have to be aware of it, will start working on the problem. It'll sort of put ideas together that you've already got from your memory, etc., and come up with various possible solutions. And generally there are lots of possible solutions, most of which probably don't work, to a problem. Now, that's what your default mode network is doing, this network. Now, there's another network that decides whether the solution is really good enough for you to even become aware of it. I'd refer to that as simply the judgment network. Once again, that also operates unconsciously. And when your default mode network comes up with an idea which it regards, the judgment network regards as good enough, it pops into your head as an idea and you go, aha, wow, I've, I've solved it. Okay, so basically what the, that judgment network is the thing that seems to determine how apparently creative you are because it will tend to reject ideas, even good ideas. Now, what does the judgment network rely on to make up its mind, so to speak, as to whether an idea is good enough or not? Well, there are two kinds of information. There's essentially what you've already got in your memory about things that will work. For example, if you want to build a bridge, you can't build it out of paper, for example. It knows those sorts of things, facts, facts about a particular problem. But the other thing is that it relies on what people around you are also thinking and saying. In other words, humans are social animals. And we pick up the attitude of those around us. We do this quite unconsciously. And that judgment network picks up automatically the attitude of those around you. You can call it groupthink, etc. Attitudes, conventions, etc. It picks those up and it applies those as additional filters. In other words, it'll reject ideas if it thinks the rest of the people are going to say, no, that's, that's a crap idea. Now, here's the point. People on the autistic spectrum have essentially are less sensitive to those influences around them. That's what causes them the problem. But at the same time, it gives them a unique freedom as well because that judgment network now isn't, if you will, prejudging things on the basis of what people around them in the social context is. And so they have greater freedom of thought and they come up with ideas more or less see things literally outside the box that other people more or less have rejected unconsciously because it's not really the approach that's normally accepted. 
but then they tend to blurt those things out, and sometimes they're considered brilliant, and sometimes it's like Elon Musk, for example, you mentioned him earlier, has gotten in trouble a number of times, you know, just basically blurting stuff out uh, either to reporters or on Twitter. That's part of this, right? is it not? There are probably other elements as well. I think that one of the things that high status and power does, is it does also other things to your brain, but that's a completely different topic as well. I think that mm. could be factor also. So having high status and, and power means that in order to survive, you no longer have to be so careful that you don't alienate others and you're not as dependent on others. So people become less inhibited? People in power, particularly who, who achieve high status, seem to sometimes undergo a bit of a change of personality, become less empathic, become more intolerant, become more, become more um, jerks, if you will. <laughs> There is a neural mechanism now people are beginning to sort of map out as to what happens. Uh, Professor Silberstein, just to pick up where we kind of left off about five minutes ago, we have this default mode network that operates below the level of consciousness that's constantly coming up with ideas and putting things together and tossing them to another part of our brain, the judgment network. And I'm curious if there's an actual physical brain location associated with these. The judgment network that decides whether it's a good enough idea to toss up to consciousness, because this is all happening below consciousness, to toss up into consciousness so that we would suddenly say, whoa, I just got an idea. So number one, are there brain areas associated with this? And number two, is it really that simple that if the judgment network is super active basically we don't come up with a lot of creative ideas and if its activity is somewhat suppressed then we bubble with ideas the short answer to all those is yes look let me just go into more more detail the judgment network is primarily on the left hemisphere that's one that, that really does seem to live on the left hemisphere so to speak it's primarily in the frontal part of the brain the what's called the inferior frontal cortex and part of the temporal lobe as well, but sort of just on the side. And that's the region which seems to do the judging. Now, we know that, first of all, because if you damage those particular areas or if they suffer degeneration, for example, there's a condition known as frontotemporal dementia, one of the things that can happen is people suddenly become extremely creative. Quite often they're artistic creative that they come up with ideas or just new notions the whole time. In other words, brain damage actually makes them more creative. Now, the problem is that quite often the quality of the ideas is not terribly good. Their judgment network would have sort of said, no, no, that's just not good enough. Let's not, let's not pass that through to consciousness. But now they do. Now, so now that's in extreme cases of you know, brain damage, etc. There are other circumstances, for example... If you're more relaxed, and particularly if you've got a positive mood, feeling optimistic, that judgment network is less, if you will, anal retentive, less critical. Strangely enough, if you're a bit drowsy, in other words, now that judgment network, because it's evolved more recently, tends to be affected by things like drowsiness, lack of sleep. So you may find ideas popping in, for example, when, when you're drowsy. So those are the sort of circumstances that seem to increase the levels of the judgment network. There are cultural factors as well. It's been shown that, for example, 
if you measure people's creativity, it can vary depending on how strong cultural influences are, for example. So in more collectivist societies, for example, quite often the judgment network is just a bit stronger. These are relatively small effects. But there are cultural effects, but the individual effects seem to be the dominant ones. But there's no doubt that releasing or in some way even damaging the frontal judgment network makes you more creative. And there's some, there's some research taking place in different parts of the world, some in Australia as well, using weak electrical currents to, for example, weaken the uh, strength of the judgment network slightly to see if that makes people more creative. And, and it does. I think there are a number of areas by which this knowledge is important. First of all, looking at the way that society views non-neurotypical individuals, particularly people being referred to as Asperger's, as in some way deficient, I think these individuals have made some of the most remarkable contributions to civilization, and I think that should be sort of appreciated. And more to the point, I think there are probably ways of both education society, but also the individual, so that they can be taught some of the skills that are necessary to navigate, you know, the world of social and, and other sorts of human relationships. The other thing is that creativity is becoming, if you will, the key currency of nations, the thing that determines ultimately the wealth. And I think understanding better the factors that contribute to creativity, particularly attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, because that association is there because of the link between the activity of the default mode network in both creativity and ADHD. Tom, you were the first to actually point out the link between creativity and ADHD. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> Dr. Richard Silverstein. Hey, Richard, thank you so much for dropping by. It's great talking with you. My pleasure. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.